Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. This is probably the one sports-related book I will read this year, (laughs) but it was worth it. Particularly with these athletes you talk about, it's amazing the almost gap between their low point and being the best in the world because they start off with these sort of disadvantages against them. In other words, his friends were out partying and were wearing nice clothing sometimes on Saturday night they were going out and they would make fun of him. Oh, Serge, you're too poor to come out with us. And he could have gone out with them and he liked girls and, and everything, all that kind of stuff. But he said, no, that stuff will be there for me later. And I'm not advocating, you know, abstinence until later, but I'm suggesting that... Gotta be a superstar before you <laughs> pull around with girls. Exactly. So Greg Zuckerman, from best-selling author from the Wall Street Journal, author of Frackers, the greatest, also author of The Greatest Trade Ever, and now the very new Rising Above, how 11 super athletes overcame challenges in their youth to become superstars. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Again, this is the second time you're on the podcast. Great to be here. I love your work, everything you do, from online to podcast, everywhere. So it's you a real pleasure to You were my first guest two years ago. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And, and again, I love everything you do. So it's great to be back. Yeah, thanks so much. And um, also, I once again want to mention, thank you for including me in the, your first book, The Greatest Trade Ever, although it was embarrassing for me. I was the one guy who refused to invest in John Paulson right before he returned 600% in a year. Yes, there are lessons to learn from even uh, the mistakes of really smart people. Well, I'm not so sure. Lessons to learn from stupid people, too. So, rising above how 11 athletes overcame challenges, uh, some of these athletes, I mean, you talk about LeBron, James, all these athletes that you mentioned are like superstars. Uh, One of them had Tourette's syndrome. Another one was missing a hand. Someone like LeBron James had moved from home to home to home because he was in this broken family. I mean, I I think his mother was like 14 when she had him. (sighs) A little older, but yeah, very young. Yeah, and uh, he had to move out of her house for a while while she kind of found her her bearings. Um, And he had a a very difficult childhood. And and you talk about how he overcame that to become basically the greatest basketball player probably of all time. But but you actually have many basketball players here who are kind of the best in their specialties and how they kind of overcame severe difficulties and and early childhood trauma to to get there. But I want to ask first, this book feels different then your first two books were, which were more almost investigative journalism, more where you kind of embedded yourselves in in the lives of the people you wrote about. Tell me about, was this, this felt like a passion project for you, uh, uh, and the style even is a little bit different. Tell, tell me about the writing of this book and why and so on. 
Sure. So it is very different. I've written this with my two sons, and they were the impetus in some ways. Um, my youngest son is 14, and he was born with two fingers on his left hand. And despite that, he is a superstar, a ball player in our town. He's a, the goalie of the, of the travel soccer team and is a big baseball player and such. And it was his idea, really, to examine things that people have overcome in sports and to say, well, maybe there's some lessons here for other people. And I really got excited about it. And my other son is just sort of a, a bookworm and wanted to be involved in the project. And it is our view that everyone has a difference in some ways. You know, maybe it's not as dramatic as some of the people we write about. And maybe they haven't acclaimed, haven't achieved the kind of acclaim that these people have. But in some ways, everyone feels different. Everyone's got a difference. And to learn to learn from some of the accomplishments and what they've overcome and how they did it, I thought it'd be really important, and both for young people and for all other people as well. But especially for young people dealing with their own stuff, and every young person has their own stuff to deal with. So yeah, we set out to write a story, write, write a book, and the key to the book to me is that each of these stars had a different kind of challenge. So it's not just sort of the cliched, okay, their father walked out. You know, that'll happen often in sports. But um, sometimes there are physical differences. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's uh, health. Like you mentioned, Tim Howard had both uh, Tourette syndrome and OCD. So that's what we tried to do, pick out superstars who each overcame something different, some challenge. And, and I think, so a lot, a lot of this podcast has been about peak performance. Like I bring on either people who have achieved enormous success, like even world-level success in their areas, or, or writers and researchers have studied it. And it, particularly with these athletes you talk about, it's, it's amazing the almost gap between their low point and being the best in the world because they start off with these sort of disadvantages against them. But you make the, uh, the very interesting point that uh, all of us, to some extent, have disadvantages. These are just sort of obvious ones, like Tourette syndrome is one that you can see. Missing a hand is one that you can you can see or hear or whatever. Um, some of our disadvantages might be a little more emotional, whether we have the ability to persist through failure and so on. But but obviously, these guys also had that ability to persist through failure. So let's take like the, the first guy as an example, Tim Howard. Um, Tourette syndrome, OCD. What, what happened there? So yeah, so he's born and early on in his life, he realizes that he can't not pick up things on the way to school every day. Rocks, dirt, flowers, anything, his backpack. Is that a biological disorder or is there some psychological thing happening? Uh, I think it's more biological. So, um, and, and quite honestly, he had a mild version of it, but to him, it did not feel mild. So he couldn't s stop touching things and picking things up. And what if he did? Like, what if he went to school and he just held on, he strapped his hands to his body and he yeah, couldn't he even pick it up? He tried that. He tried that and tried to force himself that because it's what, what kid wants to stand out in general. And yeah. this kind of way is, is really uncomfortable. So he tried that. He just couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't. Um, he, he did as much as he could. And so he had both Tourette's and OCD and and um, what, what he found was, well, first off, there were the kids that teased him and picked on him and that kind of thing. But he dealt with that. And he had other things, too. His um, mother was white and his father was black. And they asked him why his skin was dark. And he, had to, he, he didn't really think of himself as having kind of dark skin relative, relative to his friends. And he said, oh, I just came back from Florida. So he had to deal with other kind of things, too. Um, but early on, what I found fascinating, and it's true of a lot of the stars we write about, is that he... Um, turned or he saw his disability as an advantage or he came to see it as, as such. At first, it clearly wasn't. But when he was diagnosed, 
the doctor kind of said, well, some people who have Tourette's um, have this hyper-focus, and that's what it turns out with him. So in a game, he wasn't drifting. His mind wasn't drifting. He was focused more than any kid on the field. Now, it helped that he was bigger and faster than almost everyone out there. He was a just remarkable athlete, and he could have gone into any kind of sport instead of you know leading the United States and, and as, the, as, the, as a goalie, he could have done other kinds of things. But... So to be clear, he was a goalie for soccer? Yes. Yeah, for those who don't know, he kind of um, had this remarkable um, World Cup, the, the most recent World Cup, where he didn't lead them to, to you know, the, champion, the, the, the victory in the end, but in defeat, he played probably the best World Cup game in history. And he was just playing out of his mind, just crazy kind of s- saves left and right. And um, to the point where afterwards on Twitter, people were joking, wow, uh, Tim Howard could have saved my parents' marriage kind of thing, and making all these jokes on what he could have saved, because he saved everything. Um, but what I found fascinating is that um, the doctor had predicted, and he was right, that it could be a positive. So he had this hyper-focus and it helped him in life. So that's another theme of the book where, and, and that's the thing I think that surprised me the most. A lot of these stars, you, you look at like a guy like Jim Abbott who was born with one hand and went through his own difficulties, but they came to see their disability or their difference um, or their challenge as a positive, not as a negative, uh, which I found kind of fascinating and impressive. Well, okay, Jim Abbott, by the way, that one blows me away more than perhaps any other athlete in the book. So he's, he's a baseball player. He's a pitcher. He has one hand. A pitcher has to throw, catch, field, throw, you know, do all these things with both with the hand. He has to have a glove on and he has to have the glove off in one play. How did he how did he do that to be as good or better than I mean he was the, the best amateur baseball player in the country, right? And then he was right. a pro baseball player. So how was he able to do that to be the best? It, it, not only that, the thing that, that I find remarkable is not only was he a great pitcher, he actually fielded his position well, and and he was a gold glove winner. In other words, you would think with one hand, okay, he could pitch with that one hand, but if the ball is hit back to him, there's no way he's going to be able to field this thing. And in truth, he became better than everybody else. And to me, there's sort of a lesson there that when you have no other option, your back's against the wall, you got to figure things out. And he had to figure things out. So early on in his life, all the Little League teams, the coaches, saw that weakness. He only had one hand, and they said, okay, we're going to take advantage. And they they had their kids bunt on him, so bunt the ball, which was for, would force him to run, pick it up somehow, and or, or field it, and then somehow go from the glove to the hand and throw it. And you wouldn't think it would be possible. And early on, it was really difficult for him. But with enough practice over and over again in his backyard, he taught himself how to feel that position better than his, his, his uh, um, rivals. So it got to the point where um, there was a, a really high-pressure series in Cuba against the Cuban national team, amateur o- name only. They were really professionals. And the guy who led off the game, and this is in front of, I think it was 30,000 screaming fans, and they were all staring at his hands, and he felt it. Jim, Jim Abbott felt th- th- their, their eyeballs focused on him, and they were saying things and, and making fun and laughing at his hands. And here he has first pitch, and this speedster bunts on him in front of the whole country, and he's got to field the position. And he, and, he tur- and he runs, fields it, throws the guy out, and he could sense, I'm not sure how he did it, but he could sense that the crowd had turned and was backing him and was really impressed by him. So just practice over and over again because he had no other choice. He wanted to be a, a ball player. He wanted to be a pitcher. You got to feel the position if you're a pitcher. So he forced himself to become 
a great fielder despite his disability. But let's drill down on that a second because let's say another person's a professional athlete. So they're both pros. They both know how to practice. They both know how to persist with failure. And they're, they're, they're professionals. If, if, if I'm that other professional and I have both hands, and this is just totally a naive question, and I practice over and over again fielding as a pitcher, won't I do better than the guy who doesn't have, who's missing a hand? Yes. If you focus on that one area of the game, you will be better than everybody else, right? So somebody else could have done that. I guess with that extra time, they were focusing on other kind of things. Like pitching faster or learning a curveball or whatever? I guess, right. So Jim um, had to focus on fielding his position until he became better than everyone else. I thought you were actually going to make the point that um, for every one of these guys, there's somebody else who maybe... Um, focused and practiced and wasn't able to be uh, as successful. And that would be the criticism of the theme that for that there are other people, these are the outliers, and you could always make that argument. So I would... Um, I see. So you, so the, the question really is, like you, like a lot of people have disabilities, they don't all become superstars, and you, you lucked into the 12 uh, people with disabil- some form of disability who became superstars. Exactly. It's the same criticism you can make of Gladwell stuff or even my earlier book. So I wrote The Greatest Trade Ever. Well, okay, for every one of those, as you know, for every one of those guys, there are other Me. guys who have <laughs> who were smart and, and hardworking and just didn't do The Greatest Trade Ever. But um, to me, it's not so much... It, it, to me, there's still lessons to be learned from these outliers, and that's the point of our, our book, that, yeah, maybe we all can't be Jim Abbott and field our position like a gold glove winner and, and, and throw a no-hitter, but we can still learn some of the perseverance and and the, the hyper-focus and um, the resilience of these guys. Well, you know, and it's funny. There are common themes throughout all of these, and we could talk about it now, but maybe we'll talk about a few others, and then I'll bring it up. Sure. Let's, uh, Let's talk about LeBron James. What was, uh, you know, p- for for him, again, part of the problem in his childhood was kind of a, a broken home, moving from home to home, moving, switching from school to school, so he was never really able to, to have friends. He was never able to really kind of settle down and, and develop what he was good at, at least at a very young age. And then how did he overcome that? Is it, And again, and, I'll get, and this is to your point earlier, is it simply because he was just became the biggest human on the planet and the biggest, strongest, fastest human on the planet. And that's what helped him more than anything. Yeah, it helped. But um, early on in his life, he was born, the family was sort of middle class, beautiful home in, in Ohio. And But his grandmother was his grandmother's home, a beautiful old home. And But his grandmother passed away early on. His mother was quite young, as you mentioned, a teenager. And they really couldn't keep the home. And they ended up between the ages of five and eight, LeBron James, moved, LeBron James moved 12 times. And just to think wow. about that as a kid with no roots like that, it's, um, it's a pretty um, daunting start to your life. And what happened with him is, first of all, as you suggest, he grew into just a, uh, an enormous uh, and skilled um, being. He could have played, you know, football tight end. Everyone always says he, he could have been a superstar in all kinds of sports. He's he's a phenomenal uh, athlete and, and specimen. But beyond that, he found or someone found him, a coach found him, a local coach, and became his kind of father figure. And what I often hear as we're talking to people a little bit about the book is there are these local volunteer coaches around the country and they serve to some extent as proxies for for missing fathers uh, to extent that you wouldn't necessarily imagine these people are just sort of volunteering their time and they um, take kids under their wing and this kid clearly LeBron James was a sad kid you could see him um, uh, he was sad uh, and, and the kid and the coaches and the people parents picked up on that 
And this coach took him under his wing and taught him and gave him some stability. And he still loved his mother and, and he still loves his mother and, and owes a lot to her. But um, thank God for these people that were looking out for, for, for the youth. Yeah, so, and then he, uh, as you mentioned, he grew pretty tall. Like he's six foot eight. Uh, he grew that, that way very young. So clearly he was going to shine as an athlete. But do you think he would not have shined if not for this sort of father figure? Oh, but the great thing about this coach, too, and this is kind of a theme throughout the book, uh, which I'll, I'll, we'll talk about more later. But uh, this particular coach that took him under his wing and even sort of, I don't want to say adopted, but had him in his home for a, a couple of years. He specifically taught LeBron James, if I'm remembering correctly, to shoot left-handed uh, as well as right-handed. And so LeBron James not only did had, he had the size and the strength, but he had this uh, ability that many other pro basketball players don't usually get because it was drilled into him. And it seemed like a lot of these athletes had kind of an extra ability uh, at some point drilled into them. And that almost becomes a way to um, t- uh, balance off the handicap. That's exactly right. So there are, he's a specimen. He's a human specimen, obviously. But there did, are a lot of those guys. Did you meet him through writing this? Not, not LeBron. He's one guy we, haven't, we didn't meet. We met all kinds of other people, um, but we didn't tell you he's a busy guy. But w- one great thing about LeBron is, listen, you go to the courts of, of, of New York City, West 4th Street, you get some specimens there too, and nothing ever happened with them. So it takes much more than physical ability, as you suggest. And yeah, this coach forced LeBron to dribble and shoot lefty at a young age. And it was at a time when LeBron wasn't thrilled to be, he, he thought he was doing fine with his right hand. And, you know, you look even in the NBA, you got guys who rely just on their right hand. And Latrell Sprewell, he retired a few years back, but he was prim- only dribbled with his right hand. So you could still go far, but can, you can't become LeBron James without somebody pushing you, pushing you. And you saw that elsewhere too with Dwayne Wade, another a player we, uh, we, we profile in the book. Uh, his... He, he had issues with his family too, and his father and his mother um, split up. And for a while, he's living with his mother, and um, she was a, a, a drug dealer. And um, and at one point, at age of six, the police burst into his home, put a gun to little Dwayne Wade's head, saying, "Where's your mother? She's a, a dealer. We have to arrest her." And she was in the in the bathroom using drugs. So he went through all kinds of tough times early on. But he too, I'm just trying to make the the uh, comparison he too had somebody and it was his father who pulled him out of the ghetto and he went to live with him and his half um siblings in the suburbs uh, outside illinois and he wouldn't it, he pushed him on the court and elsewhere disciplined him gave him chores you need somebody like that each of these people to some extent either has a parent or somebody looking out for them well and and with with Dwayne Wade his father also so, so there's so many characters in here. I might miss and match some of the details, but Dwayne Wade, his father was, and I, I don't know sports at all. So his father was also had a former uh, pro player, correct? Yeah. So he had some good bloodlines that helps. Uh... And, and specifically, though, it was interesting because he, unlike a guy like LeBron James or many other people who eventually become pro basketball players, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Dwayne Wade started off smaller, so he had to learn a different style of shooting than any other person who eventually became a pro basketball player, and then that was kind of pounded into him by his by his dad. So it's always this case of a uh, teacher coming in, whether it's a father or a coach or whatever, uh, identifying, or, or a doctor, identifying what the handicap is, and how we can build a skill that... Um, you know, sort of 
d- um, diffuses the effect of the handicap. So in Dwayne Wade's uh, case, is releasing the ball uh, slightly earlier for the shoot, which ultimately made him more accurate as he grew taller. That that was actually Steph Curry. There are some things oh, okay, with so yeah, I, but I no, that's a good point. It, it is a good point, right? So Steph Curry, if we can segue to Steph Curry, yes. so Stephen Curry, who's the MVP of of the NBA, and um, just a remarkable, unbelievable. Uh, athlete, he was very small growing up, and he was okay player, he was a pretty good player, but he was shooting way too far down below, and his father said, if you want to go anywhere, and his father was the pro- former pro, he said, you're going to have to shoot over your head, and he forced him, and it was a, it was a summer through a, a full of tears, so it was a difficult summer, and he forced him to shoot, not only over his head, but as you suggest, a unique way of shooting, where instead of most people shoot at the top of their jump, he developed a shot on the way up, and it made for a perfect arc, and I don't know why more people don't shoot that way, but it made for a beautiful arc where it's easier to shoot that way, but the same kind of thing where, and it's a good point, that almost everybody in the book had had some setback. Just forget about all the things we write about family issues and poverty and racism um, and physical issues. But you had some issue even in your your ability to play sports, and there was someone pushing them. As opposed to um, there's a real criticism of how ball players develop today, especially in basketball, and it's why um, American ball players, while they're still dominant, uh, increasingly we're going to Europe because they're more they're they're taught they're forced to teach to to learn more skills. And because we indulge our players too often in in America. So a kid's really good, and he's only good with his right hand, but he's scoring 20, 30 a game. Let him be, forget indulge him, we let him cut through school and and, and cut corners. But these players, luckily enough, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Dwayne Wade, and others had someone in their life telling them, well, yeah, you're good just doing whatever you're doing, but you're not going to get to the next level or the level after that without learning how to dribble with your left hand or and, and shoot with your left hand or shoot in a different way on the way up, that kind of thing. So it is interesting. You need someone forcing you to get out of your comfort zone. So so let's talk about some of the others. Uh, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna kind of just sum through. Sure. Like Althea Gibson. You know, this is a tennis player from the '40s. Kind of blazed the way for uh, players as good as Venus Williams and Serena Williams. Tell me a little about her story. Yeah, so Althea Gibson, um, had she grew up, and this is um, um, an di- earlier period, she's one person we kind of go back in history because she was a such a trailblazer. Um, she grew up, uh, I believe it was the, the 50s, and she encountered real racism. Um, and then when she became good, no one really thought she should get a shot at things like the Wimbledon. And... She got some surprising support from people in the uh, tennis uh, world, uh, colleague uh, c- competitors and others. But it did take a while for her to break down the 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 barriers and what her approach was. And she got criticized for it a little bit um, for blending in a little too much. But she learned to control her temper. She had a a fierce temper growing up, and she cut school and 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 got reprimanded and got tossed out of school and really um, saw things her own way and didn't want to really compromise. And over time, she realized that it, it won't work like that. So she learned how to control herself, a little bit like Jackie Robinson to some extent, and becoming a role model. And that was a way for society to accept her. And then eventually she triumphed. And how did she do it? Well, to some extent, she was a natural um, a star, but which, a lot of it was... It occurs with a lot of them, but a lot of people are naturals. Like you say, you know, I pass West 4th Street on 6th Avenue, and those basketball players are pro-level basketball players. What separates them from the ones who actually go on to become pros? Like exactly. What separates the strong amateur from the pro, in your opinion? Because this is related to who also 
overcomes a disability versus those who don't. That's exactly right. So to me, at least from the people that we profiled and spoke to in a book, it's an ability to handle setbacks and to be resilient and to ignore these things and to learn from them um, and to actually turn them into positives. It's a remarkable thing to do, to be able to have a setback and deal with it. So she lost a lot of early tournaments, Althea Gibson, and she dealt with racism and people screaming at her and cursing at her, calling her names, but she was able to deal with it. She handled it um, calmly, learned from her setbacks. and so, so learning from the setbacks, it's really key. So what do you think happens? I keep bringing up uh, Fourth Street since you, you bring it up. Uh, Again, anybody visiting New York, it's a pleasure to. It's like a pro basketball team right on the street yeah, there. Yeah. But what's uh, what are they not overcoming setbacks in their lives, or what's going on? Listen, I'm I'm not a sociologist. I haven't interviewed them, but my sense from speaking to the athletes uh, in in our book who did succeed, and from uh, getting a sense, of, I've played a little bit um, ball. I'm a short Jewish guy, but I had I I spent uh, so years playing. So for you, yeah, yeah, and you know, more, more more Washington Generals. <laughs> um, but I did play against a lot of these guys, and they've got remarkable talent. And yeah, that is the difference where they had the talent, but there was some setback, and they had some falling out with a coach, and someone gave them a hard time, and some coach didn't give them enough respect, and for whatever reason, they didn't. Uh, persevere, and you see this per- perseverance from the guys uh, in our book, which I find remarkable. And, and it's not to say that I've got that. You know, I, I, part of the reason I write this, these kind of books is I want to learn from them too and become more like them and, and handle setbacks. And I think w- we all come. That's that's why. Yeah, this is a book for young people, especially who like sports. But it's for anyone. There are the lessons that are life lessons. I think, and I, I try to learn them myself. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Let's talk about Shane Battier for a second, because I find even as a writer, some of the things I've learned 
uh, uh, in in writing are similar to what he learned in basketball. So That's maybe, interesting. Yeah, so, and I'll, so, I'll, I'll, I'll make the comparison once you tell a little more of the story of him. Shane's a fascinating story to me because someone encouraged me to speak with him, and I know a little bit about sports, and to me, he was the least likely to be a candidate for this book because he had success his whole life, it seemed like. Um, from a young age, he was the, the high school player of the year. In college, he won the championship a few times. In the NBA, he won the championship a few years. He grew up with two, par- two loving parents uh, in the suburbs of Michigan. So w- w- what kind of challenge is there to overcome? So I was really skeptical when I started speaking with him. I was polite, but I was a little skeptical. And then I heard his story. And to me, it's really interesting because it shows you that... W- Stuff's going on inside of everyone's life, and you don't realize what's going on and the challenges and, and, and the stuff they're dealing with. So Shane Battier, on the surface, looked like somebody who had everything going for him, but he didn't see it that way. So what he saw was, yeah, he grew up in the suburbs of Michigan in a predominantly, and, and it was a, a mixed family. His um, father was black and his mother was white. So he grew up in this nice, well-to-do area, but all the people in his in his neighborhood and his school saw him as a black kid. And... And I wouldn't say they they teased him, but they made him feel uncomfortable sometimes. So he didn't really fit in. And part of the, he'll admit, it was part of the himself. And then, because he was a great basketball player, he would go into the inner city Detroit AAU games. And he said, ah, finally, somewhere I can fit in with my, you know, people who play basketball and I'm black. And he'd, and, and he'd go in there and they'd say, oh, here comes the white kid from the suburbs with the nice sneakers and the nice shorts. And he was just wearing, you know, stuff like you and I, our parents got you some sneakers. Maybe they were new, whatever. They were nice sneakers and shorts, but he, they didn't overdo it. But he couldn't fit in in either world. And he grew up like that. He grew up unable to fit in in the white world or the black world. And back then, I guess maybe it was a little more uncommon to have mixed parents, uh, uh, mixed mixed race parents. So to him, to, to, to Shane Battier, he grew up not being able to fit in. And at one point, so he felt bad about it, but then at one point, something turned on and turned. And he decided to say, you know what? Oh, I, I, I'm a runt. I, I'm somebody who doesn't fit in either world. I'm going to make that into a positive. And that affected the way he played the game. So if anybody any of your audience remembers how he played, he was a fascinating guy because he would do all the ugly parts of the game really well. So he would take a charge uh, defensively. He would be sprawled out on the on the court after someone runs him over, but he he brought a, he caused a foul on the opposing star. And he always would guard the opposing star. Lots of people, if you're a superstar, uh, in the NBA, you don't want to guard the other superstar. You'll look bad. You'll spend too much time playing defense. You'll so like, exert like Michael energy. Jordan doesn't play defense. No, well, he he was a great defensive player, but ideally, these guys want to focus on offense. You look at James Harden. James Harden on the Houston Rockets. He goes through the motions on defense. He's amazing on offense. He goes through the motions on defense. So Shane Battier said, "You know, I don't care what people think about me. I don't fit in either world anyway. So I'm going to do things like make an extra pass and." guard the, the best guy on defense and come off the bench. One time he was starting the NBA and you, no one asks to go to the bench. No one. That's like admitting you're, you're mediocre, you're, you're, you're inferior. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go to the bench because that way I can guard. There's a way to do it. For whatever reason, it helped the team. It helped the team. So he, because of how he grew up and the insecurity he grew up with, he eventually came around to the view that I don't care what people think about me and how I look. And it, it helped his game. So I, I find that kind of story interesting. Yeah, so so uh, and there was a couple things interesting. So he became very good at defense, meaning you don't really see him as the guy who shot forty points in a game or this or that. But 
he was the one you could put against Kobe Bryant, exactly. the best basketball player maybe in history, particularly at shooting near the net and so on. And he would be able, he was the one guy who'd be able to defend against Kobe Bryant. But he did it with an interesting style. He he knew he couldn't compete against Kobe Bryant at the net. So what did he do? So he did this thing. It's fascinating, and you wonder why more people don't do it. And I think the answer which is, which is because, by the way, you've just said that twice. So it's an interesting theme among these people. Yes. And a part of it is because they'll look, it, it's not the coolest looking. And for, it's, it, you don't look cool doing it, so people shy away from it. So what happened was um, when, when opposing players like a Kobe went up, um, to, 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 uh, especially on a fast break, uh, with the ball, and most people go up with them and try to block the shot. It's a cool thing to block a shot in the NBA or anywhere. You go on West 4th Street, you block a shot, you're the man. You made the other guy look inferior, you've embarrassed them. Everyone loves to block a shot. I'm 5'7", and if I could block a shot, I would love to. I've had many shots of mine blocked. But um, so he did. But, but so Shane Battier, he knew he couldn't block Kobe Bryant's shot, and he wasn't even going to try. What he did was, as Kobe Bryant brought the ball up to shoot it, he would jar it away. And in other words, he would stay a little bit low. He would act like he was going up with Kobe Bryant, but he would stay lower and swipe at the ball, and it really worked. And yet, again, once again. People don't do it because it looks, you could, he, he did this other thing where he would put his hand in Kobe's face and he did it with other, other opposing shooters. And that also works too. You obscure the vision of the opposing shooter. Yeah, why don't people, more people do that? It it's isn't not cool. a foul. It's, it isn't a foul. It just isn't, is frowned on. Hey dude, stop. What, what's with the hand in the face? It's just old school. Like guys in the fifties and sixties did that a lot. Like I can remember my uncle doing that kind of thing and it gets in the head of the players, but they don't do that as much. I mean, some players will do it, but it's, it's better to go up and try to block it or steal it, but they don't put their hands in the opposing guy's face because they'll, and, and Kobe got upset. Kobe hated going up against Shane Batty. We write about it in the book. So you don't win any friends doing that kind of stuff, but he didn't care. Again, he grew up without many friends, so he didn't care. So I think this idea of not caring is really important. So whether you have one hand and everyone's kind of making fun of you or whether you have Tourette syndrome and everyone's waiting to see if you're going to like break out a bunch of, I don't know, curses or whatever, uh, having an ability to not care what people think, which allows you to sort of look at the game differently um, so that you can develop skills that other people are not developing. Like if you're already sort of on the outskirts, on the fringes of your peer group, if you could be on the fringes even further with a skill set you develop as taught by a teacher, all these guys had a teacher which helped them develop these skills. It seems like there's a common theme here of, of and then of course persistence through you know, you learn very quickly to persist because you had to persist on a personal level when you were younger. So maybe that persistence translated into the athletics. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with that. There's also the, when you talk about persistence, um, you know, it's cliche practice, practice, but these guys had remarkable persistence. So there's a guy, uh, Serge Ibaka, um, we write about in the book, and uh, he's from the Congo, poor guy. He uh, grew up so poor that um, he didn't really have sneakers. So on the court, they would, whatever sneakers, shoes they had would get worn out. So they would have to reinforce the bottoms of their soles with cardboard, he and his friends. And his mother um, passed away of cancer at an early age. His father was a political prisoner. And he realized early on that basketball was his ticket out. So he started, and, and, he, and he really emphasized this when he spoke to me and my boys. He put his arm uh, around my boys and he, made, and he emphasized as a life lesson the importance of focus. In other words, his friends were out partying. 
and were wearing nice clothing sometimes. On Saturday night, they were going out, and they would make fun of him. Oh, Serge, you're too poor to come out with us. And he could have gone out with them, and he liked girls and, and everything, all that kind of stuff. Um, but he said, no, I, that, that stuff will be there for me later. And I'm not advocating, you know, abstinence until <laughs> later. But I'm um, suggesting that... Got to be a superstar before you fool around <laughs> with girls. Exactly, no. Um, but he really emphasized, that was the one thing he emphasized with, with my kids, is the importance of not getting distracted by things. By, he said to my sons, video games will be there later, girls will be there later, all that stuff that distracts you will be there later. And again, not every kid can just focus on whatever it is math or sports or whatever solely, but there's something to be said for for the explanation as to why a guy like Serge Ibaka, yeah, he's, I think he's 6'11", and he runs like uh, a guy who's 5'11", whatever, but beyond that, there are a lot of guys like that, beyond that, he had this ability to focus, focus, focus on on sports, and it, and it helped him. So, so uh, a lot of uh, these people in the book, your kids ended up meeting, what do you think their takeaways were uh, through the process of writing this book, and they and you list them as co-authors. So, yeah, yeah. What, what what were their takeaways? And 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 by the way, congratulations to you as a parent. Like you know, making your kids co-authors and using that as an excuse to just call up every athlete you wanted to call up and introduce <laughs> them to to them. Because we all know it's just an excuse to call up everybody you want to call up and ask them any question you want. Yeah, Heck, it's why I called you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I'm at the Wall Street Journal, and I'm used to I've written a couple books. I'm used to people wanting to talk to me. When it comes to the sports world, it was it was less easy than I thought it would be. So it took a little more persistence because on, they're on our huge part. and they're busy. Yeah, some of them, may believe it or not, said okay, or their agent said, "Well, what are you paying me to, to talk to you? Well, how much?" You, and uh, I had to explain them the uh, first of all the economics of how little we make, and, and second of all how unethical it would be. And they got it came around to, but it did help having my kids not not to, as a prop, but because a lot of these guys are a little bit um, jaded at this point. I've talked to so many adult journalists, sports journalists, they're kind of sick of them all. But you have a kid um, you and you want to impart something. I, I, I was, um, there are a lot of people, Serge Ibaka, um, Jacques Demare, the, the coach who I think had an unbelievable story. R.A. Dickey, the pitcher, sat with my kids and, and me in the Yankee Stadium dugout for over an hour before the game. So they were eager to share some life lessons with young people. And that really kind of blew me away. It was really impressive to me. So these guys are, you know, multimillionaires and they've been written up everywhere. But to sit down and spend the extra time to impart some life lessons, I thought that was pretty impressive. I'm not sure. I, I think I've forgotten your question, actually. Well, well what, what was the takeaway from your Oh, for, for your those kids. kids. So they came into it my, my youngest is an autograph hound and he really kind of just wanted some autographs and my eldest is a bookworm and he wanted to be part of a book project but slowly but surely we all became sort of blown away by these stories and they came out of it just completely with a different perspective so again at first it was sort of all right i want to meet some players by the end they were amazed they were um really impressed by each of the stories because they're all so different and yet what they've overcome is just so dramatic. So, you know, I live in suburbia. I live in New Jersey. So there's not many setbacks to my kids. You know, they've got their own setbacks. Everyone's got a difference. And again, I said my son and... Um, Which my, is an important point. Everyone's got a difference. Just because you weren't born with Tourette's or only one hand, everyone's got something to overcome and it's sort of like isolating that and it seems like an important theme is finding out also what advantages can come from it i totally agree and that to me is the theme of the book so yeah we weren't you know born in the congo like congo like um like serge Ibaka, but 
you know, there, there's a kid in, in the next town over who unfortunately uh, took his life recently because of the stress of, of taking the ACTs and the SATs. And it's, um, you know, it's haunted all of us as parents uh, in, the, in, in the area. And, it, and so, so everyone's dealing with something. That kid was obviously dealing with something. M- my son's a junior in high school and it's a stressful um, year. And I'm sure a lot of the parents out there can, can relate. The whole college process nowadays, and um, it's, it's more competitive than ever. So everyone's got their own stuff and their own um, differences. That's our contention. So that's kind of why we wrote this book. And and have you seen uh, improvement in your kids' performance after hanging out with all these you know elite athletes? Um, it's early. No, they they're pretty uh, well adjusted kids, but there is. I think it's gonna be a life lesson for them. Um, kind of a reminder that hey, yeah. even with this setback, with persistence, focus, a good teacher, and maybe exploring what other skills I can learn that nobody else has learned, this might propel them forward. In I any think very field. much. And that last point is a really good one. It's all about. You know, in economics, it's competitive advantage. What well, what can you do better than other people? Mm-hmm. And as you suggest, so Shane Batty, I found his competitive advantage or comparative advantage. I always forget which is the one my brother teaches business school. But um, but same kind of thing. He became somebody specializing in things that others didn't care about. And you see that throughout uh, the, the book. Um, again, there's this guy, Jacques Demer, who's a, who's a coach, and he never learned how to read or write. Um, he was functionally illiterate, and he had to hide it. To me, that's the most... As an adult, um, remarkable story in some ways that the guy, and he, but he came up with all these tr- stratagems, these tricks to to trick people into thinking he could read and write. So he had to adjust on the fly. And I don't know, he he became a coach who specialized in um, being a player's coach and being friendly and encouraging because he had a tough, tough childhood. So they all found their their niche, as you suggest. And why would that be good? Like sometimes being too friendly to um, the athletes, if you're a coach, could, could backfire on you. It could. I think when it's genuine, I think they sense. They didn't know his background. So just to take a step back, here's a guy who grew up and he was uh, physically abused by his father. Daily, daily, night he'd come home and just get beaten up by his father. And his mother, was he'd go to school every day and his mother was getting beat up by the father as well. And he couldn't focus in school. All he could think about was his father and what he was doing to his mother at home. He loved his mother dearly. And he literally could not learn, he never learned how to read or write because he just missed that those first few years when he couldn't focus and it, and, and, and it hurt him his whole life and no one really helped him. And he became a coach. Here he is in the NHL. And he can't read or write, so he had to come up with these amazing uh, tricks. So he would, he, he would start wearing glasses even though he didn't need to. And then he would that way when people came to him and said, "Oh, can you sign this?" and he'd say, "Oh, he'd fumble and he couldn't find it. I can't find my glasses. Oh, can you sign it for me?" Or he would carry newspapers under his arm and to suggest that he could read, and he didn't. He would watch CNN a lot, so he was well informed. All these kind of things. He would order the uh, the special every time in, in the restaurant. So. Um, um, he, 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 to me, he's an example of adjusting on the fly and figuring things out. And eventually he came out of the closet and owned up to it. And to me, it's a, a pretty moving chapter. And then, and then how did he adjust his coaching style because he couldn't uh, read? Ah, uh, so, okay. Thanks for getting me back on. So, um, yeah, he, I think people sensed. So his players sensed that it was genuine. He, so what he tried to do is... I don't think it was not a conscious thing, but because he was treated so poorly by his father, he decided to be just the friendliest guy. And again, I don't think it was a decision. He became the friendliest coach, the friendliest person. And and his players appreciated that. So it was genuine. They, They didn't know what had happened in his background at all. They had no sense. 
But the fact that he went through what he did as a child and he became um, this supportive, encouraging, friendly coach, I think is partly because of what he dealt with. And it wasn't a conscious decision, but it evolved that way. And so they, again, they didn't, um, you know, a lot of times a friendly coach, the, the athletes, the players will take advantage of the friendly, yeah. friendliness, even if it's genuine. Like yeah. How was he able to kind of just still firmly coach and come up with the best coaching strategies and so on, particularly given that he couldn't read, you know, histories or from other coaches and so on? Well, he was a, 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 a great motivator, a sharp guy, smart. Uh, 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 I guess he had guy. to be more verbal in terms of the motivation, so that maybe helped him. Yeah. Like, also, he was lucky to get into situations where there were kind of turnaround situations with pretty good talent, but they needed somebody to be a supportive. But he also, quite honestly, like many coaches, you're you're hired to be fired. So it's not like he lasted at the same team for a decade or so. He, you know, that style, as you suggest, doesn't last forever. So he he won Coach of the Year back to back. First per- person ever in the NHL. So he had a lot of success. But eventually, you're right. Being the friendly, supportive guy doesn't always work long term. So so what did you learn? Uh, you know, so you're a Wall Street Journal writer, uh, author. Uh, you know, this, is, this has been a very different book from you. Although you have examined in both with Frackers and, and The Greatest Trade Ever uh, uh, peak performance, particularly in the areas of finance and, and industry. But what did you learn from this? So, like, what, what's our takeaway? What the person sitting at home, which is a person just like you and me, may say, what, what can we take away from this? So, as you suggest, I am drawn to characters who achieve dramatically against all odds. And you could say the first John Paulson, I wrote the book, The Greatest Trade Ever. So, that was a guy who made $20 billion over two years and he wasn't betting against the housing bubble. And he wasn't even a housing guy, he was a merger guy. What does he know about housing? And yet he did it. And the other people in the book as well. And The Frackers is about people who saw something that the oil and gas giants didn't, that we in this country can find a lot of oil and gas. And the experts, um, um, dismissed them and they proved them wrong. So I am drawn to that theme. And here too, a lot of the people are unlikely success stories. And to me, that's one of the lessons that from a disadvantage can come advantage. And that's one thing I was most surprised by, how each of them uh, unprovoked um, kind of said, Greg, I saw my dis- I, I, I came to see my difference or my disadvantage, my challenge, uh, my difference as an advantage, something that actually helped me. And I never would have thought that. I thought it was all about persistence. And persistence and practice is a key theme of this book. But it's also seeing, and I think you've probably in your own life, uh, I know a little bit about what you've accomplished and, and, and your setbacks too. Maybe that helps you become successful. Some of those disadvantages and those setbacks aren't just setbacks. They actually, and it takes time and you don't see it right away, but those setbacks actually help you. They don't hurt you. They actually help you long-term. And you know, there's this big theme now about grit and all that kind of stuff. It's the same kind of thing where, and, and a lot of us have, have uh, as parents, want our kids to be able to overcome things and they don't have so many challenges and kind of suburbia and all that kind of thing. And that is an emphasis I think we have of trying to teach that you can see a disadvantage as a positive. A disadvantage is a positive, which helps you um, kind of traverse a bigger gap, say, than the regular player going to pro. You have to actually persist persist further, a uh, further distance, which in some ways gives you more 
quote-unquote hours of practice or whatever. But then there's always this interesting thing where they all developed skills to the periphery of the main, of, of what were considered to be the core skills of the of the game or the sport, whatever sport they were involved in. And I found that to be fascinating because th- these sports, you think, okay, we all, we know, all know uh, the skills that needed to be learned, like basketball, you need to learn dribbling and shooting. But then it turns out there's these other periphery skills that these guys somehow had a special talent at learning, perhaps because they were always on the periphery. I like that theme. Yeah, these are people who were outsiders who didn't have it. Didn't come easy to them uh, early on or, or even later in life. A guy like Ari Dickey, we didn't really too, m- talk about him too much, but he's a guy who's abused sexually um, by a female and a, a, a boy in the, in the neighborhood and grew up in really difficult circumstances. He had to break into uh, abandoned homes um, just for somewhere to sleep. He would break in mm. and then roll up a um, sweatshirt and put his head down to sleep at night. He just needed somewhere to sleep. And then later on, he signs a million dollar, about to sign a million dollar contract to pitch for the Texas Rangers. Then they notice something in a picture that he's missing a ligament. And uh, it turns out, and then they withdraw that contract. So, um, but it's that same kind of thing where he developed into a knuckleball, knuckleball pitcher and found success that way. So same kind of thing as you suggest. It's a peripheral kind of skill. No one throws the knuckleball. Very few people do. A couple Is it hard? People. It's hard to learn. It's hard to master. There's no one to teach you. What happens in a knuckleball? Like the ball goes all around? Yeah, well, it's supposed to drop and, and, and it, it, there's no spin to it. Um, and each one throws a little bit different. He throws a little bit harder than some other people. So it's it, it's hard to master, but um, it's just so unusual. But it's the same kind of thing. It's a peripheral skill, as you suggest. And he saw no one else pitching it and he, and he didn't had no other options. So he, he decided to master it. You know, it's funny. It reminds me of uh, in the chess world, Bobby Fischer, who's mm. considered the, or some many people consider him the greatest chess player ever. When he was younger, I mean, he he suffered from mental illness all his life, probably starting from when he was at a young age. His dad left at an early age. His mom was always at work. He didn't go to school, so he was just at home all day studying chess. And then at one point, he wasn't necessarily known as the most talented young player. And then he kind of disappeared from tournament play for a little bit when he was 12 years old. And he did this intense study of games played in the 1800s. So he became better than anyone else Mm. at knowing every game from the 1800s. And he tried to improve on the play of all these games by world-class players in the 1800s. And so when he came back into play, he would play these openings, you know, the chess, uh, the beginning of a game is called the opening. Mm. He would play these openings that many players had already forgotten about or had considered too obscure or too simplistic to, to master, but he had mastered them and kind of improved them. And, you know, he then won the U.S. championship 13 to zero, but the first player to do mm. a total shutout in the U.S. championship sort of reminds me of that story a little bit. Yeah, that's fascinating. And again, he took advantage when other people didn't necessarily, other people wouldn't, but he took advantage of a setback or used the setback. And you've talked about that in your own work about the importance of taking a step back when you've, you know, down and out and you've got no options. Well, you can figure out some options and, and not to give up and to try to adjust on the fly. And it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do to have that self-confidence and, but um, that self-resilience and, 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 and being able to Turn on, sit, take a step back, and try to figure out what are your options here. What can you do better than other people? There are some things that everyone can do. So, so Greg Zuckerman, this is probably the the one sports related book I will read this year. <laughs> but it was worth it. Like I'm not a big sports fan at all, but I was fascinated by each of these stories. Uh, Rising above, how eleven athletes overcame challenges in their youth to become stars. 
really like just a fascinating um, approach to athletics that I had never read before. Uh, so, and it's not only by you, but it's by Elijah and Gabriel Zuckerman. So I, I, I like how you brought the family into it. It must have been a bonding experience. Oh yeah, and, it was a great fun. project. Yeah. And wonderful. so, good luck, and, and I hope this, I hope this book does really well. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for the James Altucher show and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.